you remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Our scripture passage this morning is from Psalm 1. Hear God's Word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Grass withers and flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the wonderful joy of being with uh, my brothers and sisters here in Sherwood, that we would uh, um, consider your word together. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would, by your spirit, attend to it, that it might not return void. Would you show us Christ here? Would you show us our sin? Or would you show us how Christ has made an end to all our sin? Would you do that uh, for our good and for your glory? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Glad to be here. Uh, well, greetings to you on behalf of your uh, brothers and sisters in Christ at Hope Church PCA in Hot Springs. I am, uh, we enjoyed the chance to come and drive with my wife and my five kids. Five kids at last count. Um, five, five and done. Five kids, and uh, we are, uh, it is a joy to be with you this morning. And uh, I'll tell you, uh, 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 this passage reminds me of a Christmas song a Christmas song that always scared me. You ever think of a Christmas song being scary? There is a Christmas song when I was a kid that really frightened me, and it was, Santa Claus is coming to town. (laughs) That song always sounded to me like an Advent judgment day. Like, Santa Claus is coming, and he knows... If you've been naughty, and he knows if you've been nice, and he sees you when you're asleep, and he knows when you're awake, and he knows if you've been bad or good, so you'd better be good for goodness sake. And so it frightened me. Christmas is going to be Judgment Day. And I am really worried that when Christmas rolls around, I'm not going to get a Rock'em Sock'em Robots. I'm going to get a lump of coal or a bag of switches. And we always had that parent. Somebody had a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle who would tell you, oh, I know a kid I went to school with. And they got coal. They got a bag of switches. They were a bad kid. And so Santa was this elderly man in the sky who was, had the power of omniscience. And he was watching me while I slept. It's kind of creepy. But there's a sense in which this psalm, one reading of this psalm, sounds a little bit like that. There's naughty people and there's nice people. Better watch out, you better not cry. Well, is that what this is about? Do we treat Santa a little bit like God or God a little bit like Santa? So my question today, as we consider Psalm 1, is we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at what Psalm 1 requires. Second, we're going to look at how pitifully we fall short of that requirement. And third, we're going to look at what Christ has done about that. So... Let's look at Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Here the psalmist is 
showing us three ways in which we can sin. But we must not let the poetry of this verse lead us to think that this is an exhaustive list, but instead we should see the the threefold nature of this, sitting and walking and standing, sits not in the seat of scoffers, walks not in the counsel of the wicked, stands not, doesn't stand in the way of sinners. So you have these three sort of posture verbs, sitting, standing, walking, that the psalmist lays out for us there. If we are good Bible students, it should maybe remind us of Deuteronomy 6, which says, You shall love the Lord with all your, God, uh, all your heart, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And these words I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk along the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You see a similar structure there? When you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise up. What both of these structures, the, the walking and sitting and standing and the lying down and the rising up, what are they, what are they driving home? They're driving home all the time. All the time. We sin all the time in all these postures. It's, it's, there's no magic yoga pose that makes us impervious to sinning. Remember Green Eggs and Ham? When the, 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 the character in Green Eggs and Ham is trying to make it clear that he doesn't want to eat Green Eggs and Ham, he says, I don't want them in a boat, I don't want them with a goat, I don't want them in a house or with a mouse or on a train in the rain. I don't want Green Eggs and Ham, I don't want them... Anytime, Sam, I am. Well, uh, again, this poetic language is talking about this blessed is the man who doesn't sin in the way that he stands, in the way he talks, in the way that he walks, all the time. But, using, but letting the poetry of this, this figurative language, doesn't minimize its seriousness. To the contrary, it seems to, it confirms the seriousness of the claim. When we say that it's raining cats and dogs... We aren't being literal in the sense that we think that canines and felines are falling out of the sky. Rather, we're saying that it's raining very hard, that it's intense. We're using poetic imagery to drive home that point. And we need to see the same thing here as well. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the, seat of, stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers. All of this language, sitting, standing, walking, is the psalmist's way of saying all the time. Just like the Deuteronomy passage, all the time. Again, look at verse 2 there. The psalmist now contrasts what this righteous person doesn't do with what he does do. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates for one hour each Sunday. No, he meditates on the law of the Lord for half an hour every morning with his morning devotional. No, how often does... He meditate or think about or reflect or ponder or study or marvel at God's law. What does it say? Day and night. Are you sensing a pattern here? Walking, sitting, standing, day, night. The psalmist is calling blessed the man who refrains from doing these things. He never scoffs. He never entertains ungodly counsel. He never follows a sinful path and instead a sinful path and instead of doing those things he meditates on god's law day and night what is scoffing it's not a word we use very often using our words to mock condemn or jeer at our neighbor or even god himself scoffing at our neighbor can take many uh, forms we can do it even when we're gossiping gossiping and we sound 
a very sanctified when we do it in the South. If we follow it with bless their heart. Our scoffing and our mocking ability has been supercharged by the digital age. Once upon a time, scornful things that you said to someone ended right there, but, they didn't, but now they have the ability to travel around the globe at the speed of light. Theologian Scott McKnight has, called, has coined a term called crowd-pounding. You've heard of crowd-sourcing where you say, hey, who has the best hamburger in Sherwood? Well, uh, crowd-pounding is where through ridicule and memes and out-of-context quotes, we publish mean, harsh, and unkind remarks online and say things from the behind the safety of a keyboard that we would never say to someone's face. Scoffing is still very much in fashion. This technology just shines a spotlight on our own hearts. It is our wicked hearts that cause us to scoff and mock. Our words do unbelievable damage to others and are so destructive that God here calls those who mock or scoff wicked. Think about it. Scoffing is the opposite of showing someone grace. Scoffing cannot be done with a humble heart. Reflect on the fruits of the Spirit, for example, and say, do any of them make room for scoffing or mocking? Love. Can I be loving and mocking at the same time? Joy. Am I joyful when I am scoffing, when I am mocking? Peace. Am I exercising peace with my neighbor when I am scoffing or mocking? Patience is scoffing patient. There's no such thing. Kind, scoffing kind. Gentleness, is it gentle? Faithfulness, am I being faithful to God when I'm scoffing or mocking? Self-control, is the scoffer showing self-control? Those who are truly righteous, the psalmist says, abstain from scoffing and scorn. They also never walk in the way of sinners. They also never entertain ungodly advice. They never seek the world's counsel in how to conduct their life. In fact, their conduct is holy and completely keeping with God's holy law. That, brothers and sisters, is what Psalm 1 is getting at. That's what Psalm 1 is describing. That obedience to Psalm 1 requires all the time, no matter what you're doing, day and night obedience. So my question for you, Trinity Fellowship, is how are you doing? Are you grading yourself as you hear this? Brothers and sisters, if we allow this word, Psalm 1, this law, these commands to search us, we must be honest with it and ourselves and confess that we do not meditate on God's law day and night. And we are guilty of scoffing and mockery. We scoff at our neighbors and even at God himself. We scoff at God when we choose our own ways over Him, over His. And this is not a list of helpful suggestions like the food pyramid or the recommended daily allowance of various vitamins. No, this is God's holy law, and God's law is heavier and bigger and harsher and wider and deeper and more demanding than we in our sin want to believe. The reason that I invoked Santa Claus is coming to town is because, unfortunately, that sentiment has colored the way that we think about God's holiness. You see, we want to believe that God, like Santa Claus, grades on a very generous curve. But let's be honest. Santa tells us that we better not pout or cry, that we better not be naughty. But the truth is, no one ever really gets the coal. 
No one ever really gets the stocking full of switches. Santa's warnings in that song are nothing but saber-rattling. Empty, toothless threats intended to simply prod us to being a little bit better, to maybe shave off a little bit of unwanted disobedience. Anemic admonitions that do nothing but earn maybe some modest gains on our obedience. But Santa always shows up. We're guilty of thinking that God the Father and God's law is like that. But God the Father is not the same mythical man in the sky that Santa is. This psalm is not intended for us as a how-to manual to help us shed a few pounds or shave a few strokes off of our game. We must allow this psalm to do its work on our hearts and its work in us to reveal to us our unrighteousness, to show us that we don't measure up. It is only by having a large view of ourselves and a small view of God's law that we could find this to be a flattering picture of ourselves. But if you look in the mirror of these first three verses and you see a reflection of yourself that you like, I want to warn you that you are gazing into a funhouse mirror of your own creation. You have mentally photoshopped away all your flaws and you're fooling only yourself. Not only does this psalm exist to show us that we are not righteous, but rather, brothers and sisters, this psalm is a beautiful, captivating, alluring picture of someone who is truly righteous day and night. Beloved, this psalm, this description, this righteous man is a picture, a description of Jesus. Jesus tells us that the whole Old Testament is about himself. That's what he told the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Son of Man should suffer these things, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with, all the pro- beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures things concerning himself. So Jesus says that reading the Old Testament without reading him at the center of it is foolish. Jesus could write a book called How to Be Foolish, and it would have one thing in it. Don't read the Old Testament with him as the center. Oh, foolish and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. So when we come to Psalm 1, we must read our Bible the way Jesus tells us to read it and ask, how does this text point us to Christ? Let's look at what Jesus told the Pharisees in John chapter 5. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Brothers and sisters, Psalm 1 is a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the truly righteous man. Jesus is the truly blessed man. Jesus is the only one who never walked in the counsel of the wicked. He never held a focus group among the unregenerate to determine his teachings. He never licked his finger and stuck it in the wind to gauge the popular consensus. Jesus never stood in the path of sinners, but rather he allowed the narrow road of his Father's will to be his path. Jesus never scoffed, but rather extended grace and mercy to all who came to him in humility and lowliness. Jesus himself, although he never walked in the counsel of the wicked, but he was rather prosecuted by the counsel of the wicked. Pilate tried Jesus and found no fault in him. What did Pilate do? He turned to the crowd and he sought their counsel, the counsel of the wicked. Let's go out here to the mob 
Now let them be the jury. What do you want to do with Jesus? What do they shout? Crucify him. Jesus was prosecuted. Jesus was prosecuted by the counsel of the wicked. And so he took his cross, and he, although he was without sin, he trod the, the Via Dolorosa, the way of sinners, the path of sinners, the path that sinners took on their way to death. And he was nailed to a cross. He was, and as he hung on that cross, Jesus himself became the victim of scoffing and mockery. It's staggering. In Luke 15 it says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, and they called together the, uh, the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests, the scribes, mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Jesus became the victim of mockery and scoffing. Now why did he do that? Why did Jesus have to endure these things? The answer, brothers and sisters, is because of our scoffing, because of our disobedience. Because of mine and your indifference to God and to our neighbor, Jesus endured the punishment that we deserve. This word in verse 1, blessed, is actually the Hebrew word that is elsewhere translated happy. And so some English translations render it that way. Happy is the man. And indeed, we know this to be true. Our unhappiness and our guilt and our grief stem ultimately from our sins. Jesus never suffered guilt. He never suffered shame for something that he did. Jesus never felt ashamed for something mean that he'd said to someone. No, rather on his cross, Isaiah tells us that he bore our griefs and our sorrows. The wages of our sins fell on Jesus so that we may receive the merits of his sinlessness. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the tree planted by the streams of water and we are the fruit of that tree and we who belong to Jesus will never wither, never fall away. This is the similar language Jesus uses when he tells us that he is the vine and we are the branches. What does that mean? The branches receive their life from the vine. The branches grow because they are connected to the vine and we find our growth and our prosperity only in our union with Christ. Now, what does this understanding of Psalm 1 do to you? What is this understanding of Psalm 1 that it's a picture of Jesus? What does it make you, how does it make you want to respond? Does it make you want to scoff more? Does it make you want to seek out ungodly counsel? Does it make you want to ignore God's word? By no means, brothers and sisters. 
the only thing that gives us the power to begin to obey Psalm 1 is to see how Christ has fully and completely fulfilled it and obeyed it on our behalf. Otherwise, we will be crushed by its overwhelming demands. We have been purchased by Christ. We who were rebels outside the castle with pitchforks and torches have been adopted, cleansed, pardoned, clothed in the royal robe of righteousness, seated with Him in the heavenly places, given a new name and a new identity, Christ, children of the King, sons and daughters. And therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of His mercies, may we present our bodies as living sacrifices. Only through that understanding that Jesus is who Psalm 1 is about, do we have the power to obey it. Otherwise, it will crush us. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we are, uh, we, are, we are sinful in thought, word, and deed. We have broken your law by both what we have done and what we have left undone. But, Father, in our sin, we often want to come before you the way a, a prisoner comes before the parole board telling you how rehabilitated we are, telling you how improved we are, gazing at our own navel and not at your crucified, risen Son. Father, would you by your Spirit convince us that Psalm 1 is a picture of Jesus, that we might worship Him rightly, that we may see our sin more clearly, so that we may see Christ more clearly, and what He has done on our behalf. We ask this in his name, amen.